0: Okay, everybody, uh, welcome to this week's
1: podcast. Uh, Welcome, Peter. Welcome, Doug.
0: Welcome to 2018, everybody. And uh, we, I guess we're trapped into doing a a movie from last year now that it's January 1 of 2018. But we're going to do Chris Nolan's 2017 uh, Dunkirk, or as they would say in England, Dunkirk. I don't know if you (laughs) noticed, they always say it with the emphasis on the second syllable.
1: They usually sound better when they say stuff, so I don't know. (laughs) um do you want to give a summary yeah so i mean the best way to summarize this is to talk about i guess the real events um so uh dunkirk what really happened and what this movie's about is uh it was a huge military defeat for england and the allies in end of may um for about you know week and a half starting in end of may 1940 Uh, so we're
0: not in the war yet
1: Right. The U.S. is is not in the war yet. Um, At this point, the Brits are on the continent. Um, The Germans have started invading across the continent. And what happens is the British, uh, French, Canadians, uh, some Dutch, I guess, um, have sort of a multinational force that's fighting and Belgians, I guess, uh, are fighting the the German military, the Wehrmacht. And the Germans... um, basically, you know, have a just really a, a superior, not only a superior army, superior strategy, uh, and drive straight through Belgium around the Maginot Line, and just their tank battalions just force straight over to the ocean. And it cuts the Allies in half, and the Brits kind of realize what's going to happen, and they have, you know, a few hundred thousand soldiers there. And so they retreat to dunkirk because in belgium because dunkirk is the closest good port for them to be able to evacuate because they realize they're going to have to evacuate back to england Um, and what happens uh, over the next week or two is a massive sea lift operation where uh, multiple british ships and multiple like 700 conscripted civilian ships Go over and evacuate like four hundred thousand. I think it was something like that. Yeah, something like that. It was between three and four hundred thousand um, troops. You know, Brits and French troops, um, and evacuate them across the Channel back to England. Um, and uh, this movie is a soldier's eye view of those happenings of Dunkirk, and and Dunkirk is is. Sort of a particularly, even though it's a massive defeat in a way, it's a, it holds sort of a special um, place uh, in the hearts of Brits in their history because it symbolizes their um, resolve not to be defeated. And, you know, Churchill's famous speech, you know, we shall fight them on the beaches, we'll fight, you know, even if, so the next step was that they they assumed they were going to be invaded um, by Hitler. And
0: uh, and the you know, army lived to fight another day.
1: They lived to fight another day, and and specifically to defend Britain um, from an invasion, uh, which was quite a you know a real threat at that point. I mean, basically Hitler s- took over the entire continent within months. Um, and, and the uh, blitz, you know, the blitz just confirmed their fears, right?
0: Um, so this is a view of that. I, I had looked forward to this movie for a long time. I, I was, I've said before in this podcast, and I'll, I think I'll use the same phrase I used in the past, is I'm one of those idiots who's extremely interested in the Titanic. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm not changing topics as much as it sounds, but uh, when you read a lot about the Titanic, you can't help but read a, a lot about uh, Charles Lightoller, who was the second officer who survived. And they always would mention that Lightoller played a role at the Miracle at Dunkirk. And I never knew what that was as a young person. I remember looking it up about 15, 20 years ago, and I had never heard of it as a kid. Uh, so a long time ago, I had sort of read a little bit that there was this sort of massive evacuation, and they got the army out. Uh, so then a year ago, uh, when I saw the trailer, like the teaser trailer for this, I was very excited that it looked like an A, like a sort of an A-list attempt to make a, a movie about Dunkirk. Uh, and I was even more excited that it was Chris Nolan of um you know, Batman or prestige fame. Memento, Inception, yeah, right. Um,
1: so uh, this is almost cinema verite, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I, I really think it is. I think it's uh, almost. It's sort of a cross between cinema verite and a road movie, and um, it's certainly a very ground level view of things. It's not the typical um, war movie kind of like you know where there's uh you know what are the, those big World War II epics they made like in the 60s and 70s where yeah
0: much more romantic than this whereas this is very unflinching um and and gritty
1: right uh, and it's really even it's even from...
0: filmed and it's even filmed in a very flat lighting and color scheme to sort of emphasize uh, the reality of the situation as opposed to not make it glamorous or exciting. Like it's supposed to be terrifying and it is
1: right. And it's, it's really from the viewpoint of the men engaged it, it, the only time it departs from sort of ground level views or air level or sea level views, depending on who it's following at the time, uh, is just to give you sort of a place, um, to give you a sense of, of place, uh, keep you oriented. It, it, it doesn't have really any sweeping um, sort of uh, overviews. Um, and, you know, in a matter of fact, they even use in the, the opening scene is where the soldiers are run. They run through the village and get shot. Uh, the British soldiers. And, right. They you know, all get killed except for the main British soldier that we see. Right. He's literally
0: but, the only one to make it over the fence. Uh, and he's, he's only named, Tommy. Um, Right. He's never given a full name, but he's the only one of that group to make it to the beach. Uh, And I think sort of seeing him as the only one to make it combined with the leaflet that you see uh, showing that the Germans are surrounding them. The leaflet. uh, Right. It emphasizes their isolation and desperation.
1: Well, you know, they don't even use any exposition. They use a leaflet, which you see over his shoulder to explain the overarching position they're in. Uh, just that shows it's a propaganda lethal at the Germans drop that shows that they're completely surrounded and they're going to get slaughtered.
0: So I think that some people, <laughs> excuse me, on the first watching are, are I think we're a little confused by the way that it's structured because the events on the beach, which are referred to as the mole take a week, the events on the sea take a day, and the events in the air take an hour. And I remember, even when I saw it the first time, sometimes it was jarring the way it would go from night to day, as it would jump back and forth between the three storylines. And I think that I, I, for one, wasn't quite sure what they meant by the mole until I looked it up. Because I assumed, right. at, at, the, when I, at the when the movie started, I didn't know what they meant. Why is the beachhead called the mole? At the end of the movie, I assumed it was because the French soldier was hiding among them and he's the mole, but it's really a pun. It's referring to the French soldier and the fact that the rock jetty is referred to as a mole.
1: Yeah. I think it's really just what they referred the, um, just the physical landscape was called that. that, that Yeah. But I think it's hard to ignore
0: the fact that it's a, it's a little bit of a double meaning with regards to the French soldier.
1: Um, so he intercuts, right. He intercuts three storylines in a nonlinear way. And then he uses certain fixed points where they cross to keep you – to orient you. Um, And they all meet up along the way, the stories, towards the end
0: especially. Right. Um, I personally found the sea and the air segments the most compelling. I found the stuff on the beach a little tougher to follow partially because the men looked very similar to each other and for example i think one of the few mistakes in this movie is that tommy the british private um and uh, the french the frenchman whose name is alex they look similar and they look very similar to a lot of the other young men and i will not lie to you i at times when the very first time i saw this i was like who wait who am i watching again like which character is which yeah and whereas the air and sea narratives I found more compelling and, to be totally honest, a little easier to follow.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't I didn't feel like it took away that much that um, I mean, they do stay focused much more on the main English soldier, Tommy, who they don't even really name. Uh, no one really has a name in this movie. No one has a name, um, and there's not very much dialogue in general.
0: George has a name, I guess. The, the boy George, who dies on the boat.
1: George is the pretty much the only one, right? Um, and uh, it, I I still found it, even though maybe sometimes you weren't sure about the timeline or the characters, it still wasn't completely engrossing. And I think that you know the the fact that the timelines. Are a little bit um, jumbled sometimes. Um, it's, right. it's sort of the
0: Pulp Fiction of World War II movies.
1: Exactly. Uh, I think it's you know it's deliberate because it in Pulp Fiction it's sort of it wasn't really meant to be disorienting as much as fresh. But here I think it's sort of meant to be jarring, almost in a sense. At times, especially when it goes from, for
0: example, the the quiet fear on the beach to the intensity of the air combat. Right, and the, the air combat, by the way, it's done in a way that's very unusual. You know, um, most World War II movies that feature an aerial combat scene, there's a lot of cocksure swagger on the part of the pilots, and a lot of fun banter between them. And there's none of that in this. the The pilots talk to each other very little. At Almost all of the dialogue that they have is technical. They're asking about their fuel, their fuel consumption. They're looking out for each other. They're making plans. There's no jocularity among these pilots. You know, this is not, uh, you know, this is not Maverick and Goose.
1: But they they did have a big Kenny Loggins musical number though <laughs> in the middle. But I thought that was a little, you know,
0: it's a little pushing it for you. <laughs> yeah,
1: highway
0: um, to the danger zone. I do love. Um, I think this is really worth saying the practical effects in this movie are incredible. There's very little CGI that's overt in this. Uh, and I'm sure there's CGI in it, but you never get that. You're being hit over the head by the CGI feel. And most of, for example, the scenes of the planes are practical effects. They're either real spitfires or planes meant to look like spitfires or Messerschmitts that are actually being flown by real pilots Or they're very large scale remote controlled models that look incredible. And really, I think gives the movie much more of a grounding in reality. Like I I, a lot of times now I feel like CGI, it takes me straight out of the movie and I just I envision somebody in in the San Fernando Valley sitting at a computer working frame by frame. Whereas with this, you did not feel that. And even for example, when the planes crashed into the ocean. It didn't look like a model. It looked like they really crashed a plane, although I'm sure it was a model. It it looks great.
1: I, I thought that we had, we had hit a new milestone in CGI when I was watching because I figured, <laughs> you know, nobody does anything real anymore. Um, it's, you know, they, they just, they rely, they hire somebody and they, some dude, like you said, you know, some dude in uh up in uh, somewhere in the Bay Area with ramen on his shirt, you know, sitting there
0: (laughs) drinking 20
1: jolt colas (laughs) right yeah and he you know he just he just hand animated or wrote some you know some algorithm to move the plane i mean but this looks great and the the there's a there's a
0: frequent appearance in this movie of a heinkel 111 bomber yeah and the bomber looks fantastic i don't know if that was a real plane or not, it, it wouldn't surprise me if it was, because a lot of those survived to this day. But just the way that they show through the, the range finding gun sight, through yeah. the Spitfire you know it doesn't look like a heads up display it doesn't look like you know luke looking through his scanner in star wars it looks like the real display that they had in world war 2 which helps but it's not perfect and the plexiglass on the windscreen is a little dirty and a little yellowed. like it it looked like it was hard to fly the plane and hard to shoot something like they really really conveyed i think a, just a tremendous sense of realism and when the heinkel shoots back there's a, there are there are side gunners and, and top gunners on the Heinkel. Like when there are several times when the Tom Hardy character is shooting at the Heinkel and it's shooting back at him and you just hear this sort of deep boom and you know that he's getting shot at from their gunners and you see the tracers coming at him. Yeah. The whole movie sustains this incredible feeling of t- intensity and vulnerability
1: and that I think that, is very hard to match. Yeah. And, and the, uh, I think you're right in many, the, the, piloting scenes and the the air scenes are some ways the most real feeling and that to me is where you really you sense the physical reality of it uh that you can't you just can't get that with cg they just they can't do it it the the physics of the planes and the motion and the way the bomber turns and the way the planes turn and um this even the smoke i mean it just you can't it hasn't been simulated that well yet, and it it lends this uh, a visceral, you know, your brain n- it knows it's real, um, and and it when you see it, and and it it lends a weight to it that's that's impressive, and and the the physics seem real, the plane exactly like you said, flying the plane seems difficult, the mechanics seem real, you almost can you really get a sense of being the pilot, um, they completely bring you into the cockpit, which is um is amazing and not in this cartoony way like tom hanks i'm not uh, sorry uh, tom cruise no it's true it's absolutely true
0: um and you know i was thinking more about the sense of vulnerability and fear to get back to the mole for a second you know twice we see ships go down the first one is the hospital ship that goes down at the harbor and again uh implying that the germans clearly bombed a hospital ship that was obviously marked as such yeah. um that scene is very harrowing like and the fact that tommy and alex are actually on that ship briefly before they're booted off and they essentially watch the ship sink from the rafters in the pier and then later on they make it onto the destroyer which they're on for maybe 10 minutes before it's sunk and yeah. the ships sink fast. You know, this isn't Titanic, to make a second Titanic reference, where the ships sink slowly over a course of hours. Like, the ships sink in minutes, and you yeah. have no time. Yeah. Sort of emphasizing why the pilot that um, the crew of the Moonstone, the British uh, civilian vessel, pull. you know, he doesn't want to go below deck. Nobody does. You want to be on deck in case
1: a ship is hit, and you can jump right into the water and yeah. get out. It's your only shot. Nobody ever wants to go below decks in the, in the movie. Anytime. (laughs) um what was like the guy who plays, by the way, the
0: father on the the boat? Yeah, that's I believe that that is Mark Rylance, and he is really good in this, and he sort of brings a whole level of gravitas to the movie that I think no one else does. Not even, for example, Kenneth Branagh. Kenneth Branagh is sort of. I don't know he's sort of. I feel like he's sort of mugging for the camera on the pier a little bit, whereas Mark Rylance, as the only other real adult in the film that you followed to any significant extent, older person as opposed to a young man, you get the sense that there's a lot going on in there. You find out much later in the movie that their their other son died. He was a hurricane pilot and he was killed. And then it's. I thought it was kind of implied that he had been a soldier in World War 1, although they never explicitly say it. Like he's about the right age right. and he doesn't hesitate to run, you know, and take the boat and try to get the men. He actually leaves the dock before the British can commandeer the ship because he wants to he wants to captain it himself and get over there and get some men out.
1: He's the only sort of the only truly heroic character in the movie. I mean, his, his actions are always heroic, his intentions are heroic, and his accomplishments are heroic, right?
0: I, I think you could say the same about Tom Hardy as the pilot. I mean, yeah. he, he sacrifices himself at the end. He shoots down that Stuka that's about to bomb them at the end when they're all on the dock and when he's basically a glider. And then he manages to get the plane where he has enough time to burn it, and then he's immediately caught. And it's sort of implied that he is at the very least going to be a POW if yeah. not killed.
1: Well, you know, there, there's a very heroic scene with him. It's the, the one other sort of overtly heroic thing in the movie where he decides not to go back uh, and he uses his fuel because there's a bomber that's going to do a bombing. You know, there's another. Right. It's going to bomb the mine layer. Right. And he decides to shoot that down instead of going back. And he, he and he's
0: know, struggling with it. Like he, he's actually turned back north. Right.
1: And he's like, oh, he doesn't explain hand. it. And there's no, no it, exposition. This, this,
0: you just see the horizon pivot, and he turns back. You see him he, think
1: about it, and you follow the whole thing without a word. And you, it's understood that he won't be getting home. Right.
0: I mean, it, he's um, great. He played the Russian spy in Bridge of Spies. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah. Uh, but he's very good in that, too. But he's great in this. And the kid who plays his son is very good. And, and they do a good job of making George and uh, his son, George and the other boy, the, the captain's son, They do a good job of making them seem earnest, but realistic as teenagers. Like they're Mm -hmm. not sure what to do in every situation. They have to ask or they don't know what to do. And they're nervous and scared. They haven't been exposed to this
1: stuff before. And, you know, he shot this on film, on on, uh, basically IMAX film, like large format film. It wasn't shot on digital or even on 35 millimeter. And I think it's another aspect that makes it feel gritty. Well, I miss film. Yeah.
0: I mean, we grew up with film and I, I, I like the way film looks, you know, film has continuous tone, as they say. And I know you can do all sorts of things with digital. that You can't do with film. And if I was making movies today, I'd probably be shooting them digitally, too. But it is nice to see things done on film. It just it, it looks different. And I think it, it's sort of like vinyl versus a CD. Like it's just it's richer in a way that's difficult to describe verbally.
1: I think it's it's better than I think with vinyl and CD, there's almost more myth to it. But film looks I think that maybe there's a way when you're shooting digital video not to tart it up and not to have too much contrast or too little contrast and not to use a different color gamut that is use a really wide color gamut maybe that you won't see on film and you know not to improve things there's probably a way to do that um maybe even to simulate film grain although i guess if you're shooting in in imax there's not much film grain um but most people don't do it i think that they they they're going for maximum uh super technicolor plus you know um, saturation and they're, they're, go- they're not going for the, for a muted look or for a realistic look. And I think to no, they us, want the,
0: they want the Avengers,
1: right. And we're, we're used to film looking real to us because we've seen it so much. I wonder if, you know, you get used to certain visual style and, you know, I wonder if it's partially us we're more used to that. It's uh, possible. It's absolutely possible. But But I I remember
0: when the transition to digital happened, sometimes I would go to a movie and I wouldn't be able to tell, like, was this done in film or was this done digitally? And I would have to go and look it up afterwards. And sometimes you really could not tell. And again, especially if it's it's not an effects-laden movie and if it's just a more… Uh, work a day set in the normal life movie, you may not be able to tell, and it may not make a difference, but I think here the film really pays off because there 's so much earth tone everywhere in this movie. You know right. this movie is basically sand, water, and sky
1: are the three colors of this movie right and and sort of wool. Uh, you know, olive dreadful. Everywhere.
0: Right. Everything is everything is natural fabrics because yeah. they have very little plastic. Even I don't know if you noticed, but like for example, the Spitfire pilots, you know, their oxygen masks are covered in fabric. You yeah, know, they're not. They're, leather, not covered, helmets. they're covered in fabric. Right. Yeah. Everything is covered in fabric. Even the oxygen cord has a little a little cloth insulation on it. Right. But it's, it right. looks it looks great though.
1: Yep. It looks um,
0: phenomenal. I really like this movie. I think this might've been the best movie of 2017 for me. I don't know if this is going to win best picture, but I think maybe it should. Like, I don't know what else was a better movie in 2017 that was more ambitious and achieved more.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. It's a hundred million dollar film, um, that is, has such an intimate scale for its, for its size. You know, I mean, it, it, it's so the viewpoint is so personal um that's to me the, the most interesting thing about it i think it that it that viewpoint gives you the impact of the movie but and
0: i i think that this movie definitely owes a debt to saving private ryan but there's not yeah. a lot of other war films of the last 10 20 years that this really felt like this really felt like its own thing
1: almost uh maybe some you know like um um, all quiet on the Western front. Maybe, you know, there've been a couple of world war one movies where they, they're, they're sort of a weightily existential, you know, and about sort of one man's view out the trench, that kind of thing. And they have a sort of a single person viewpoint to some extent, but, but you're but right. not,
0: Certainly nothing since 2000. I don't think.
1: No, I, I think it most war movies are, are more like uh are more epic. And,
0: um, and saving private Ryan is before 2000 and it's ninety eight
1: that's both i mean that that movie is both epic and sort of ground level which is what you know it's mostly ground level but that was what was so uh, uh original about it
0: well and that that opening scene too i think just grabbed Filler. the viewer yeah you know that 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 sense of Men being killed and shredded all around you everywhere was something that you hadn't seen before. And typically in in a lot of movies, especially, for example, when we were growing up, somebody got shot. They sort of grabbed their chest and fell over. Whereas in Saving Private Ryan, you saw them fly apart or or limbs falling off or, you know, that that was something that that opening sequence really showed, I think, for the first time to a very, very big audience. Right but again, this also shows you too how different Nolan is from Spielberg. This is i mean world I mean sorry, uh, saving private Ryan, there is a lot of schmaltz in it, yes uh, whereas this doesn't really have much at all. There's a few a few heart tugging scenes in this, but not many, uh, and for example, like a a little bit of Schmaltz is you know George getting featured in the newspaper. At the end of the movie, uh, in his hometown, like he says, "Maybe I'll make it to the newspaper in my hometown someday." And then they do that, but even that they don't linger on it. You just you see the you see the, the article in the paper, and then you see the captain of the ship looking at the article in his house, and then that's it. You just it's just a few seconds, and then the movie moves
1: on. Yeah, it's pretty subtle.
0: But again, I actually like the understated nature of this better, and I say that as somebody who really likes Saving Private Ryan and has seen it a bunch of times, and I think I bought it when it came out. But like, I think that the, the lack of sentimentality in this movie, I think, will make it hold up better over time. Like, you could, I was thinking when I was watching, you could watch this movie in 100 years mm-hmm. and get exactly just as much out of it today, then as you did today. Yep, yeah, I agree. Um, we haven't talked about Darkest Hour, uh, but it's worth saying that we're, as we're recording this podcast, Darkest Hour is in theaters, and Darkest Hour is about Churchill's first week or two in office, and it's about the exact same events. Like It takes place the same time period as the events of Dunkirk, and it's it's a, the other side of the coin. It's about how the British government is trying to figure out what do we do? Do we have ships? Should we hold back the Navy to fight the Nazis at a later date? How can we get the men out um so we should, we right. could maybe do another podcast on that another time but just for the to the listener it's really worth seeing darkest hour if you like dunkirk because
1: it's it's the other side of the story right and even churchill's big speech is barely featured and and you think about what war movie is going to miss up a chance to you know is going to miss a chance to have uh, to put her churchill's heroic speech in and here they they mute it to such an extent he just reads a little bit of it out of the newspaper. Mm-hmm, right. She reads it to another soldier who, yeah. who's too upset to read it himself. Right. Right. Yeah. And it's,
0: and it's, and you know, it's, it's a, it's an unexpected emotional turn because I think a lot of movies would have had them come back to a hero's welcome. And it's really interesting to show that they were afraid, you know, they're going to spit on us in the street. coming back as failures like i thought that was a great bit and the way that for example they're greeted by the people at the train station yeah uh, at the very end is really well done because it shows that you know no one really knew what to expect what was going to happen this wasn't again this wasn't a a great victory but the nation was glad to have its sons back
1: anything you thought maybe um fell short or anything you could you thought i, I think been that
0: better? <laughs> this is really again I, i'm going to come back to it i think they could have made some of the characters on the beach blonde or like they yeah. could have made alex blonde like i literally had a hard time telling them apart but that might just be me and for example did you ever watch band of brothers uh no the Maybe a HBO couple of minutes series of it. that's it so i read the book loved the book uh love Ambrose. Uh and then when I saw the show I I mean having even read the book, when I watched the show, I had a hard time telling them apart because they're all wearing identical clothes and they were all dark haired and they had pretty much the same haircut but halfway through the episode sometimes I was like, wait, wait, who who are you watching here? So it was kind of the same thing. Like I think they I the only thing I think I would have changed is just somehow make Tommy and Alex a little bit more distinguishable from everyone around them. Right. Even to the point where you know Alex had stolen a British soldier's uniform, so they were wearing the same clothes. Right. It was that was a little tough, but you know it's funny because on the second watching, I watched it once in the theater and I watched it a second time for this podcast. On the second watching, I was able to tell them apart more clearly, but again, not so much the first time. And, and the, I saw it with two other people, and one of the two people I saw it with had the same issue they weren't sure who was who for a while. The third person I guess was smarter than both of us because they followed it the whole way, or at least they said they did. Hmm. I love, by the way, I do love the Hans Zimmer score um, with the clock ticking. I don't know if you listen to a lot of the scenes and the music in the background, there's a little clock ticking, uh, which I thought just sort of, again, never let up on the tension. Um, I really like Tom Hardy, um, by the way, you know, he is really a stalwart. Like he's, I don't know if I've seen him give a bad performance. I mean, he's he is Shins. I, I'm going to bring in Star Trek.
1: <laughs> wow,
0: I he thought is you Shinzon. might not get to this time. He is Shinzon on Nemesis, arguably the the worst Star Trek film, and he's the villain. And and he is maybe the only watchable thing in the movie. And the movie is just it's just it's it's right up there with star trek five for being bad but but tom hardy in one of his earlier big roles he plays the villain and he's actually pretty good uh holding his own against uh far more experienced actors but he's good you know he's great in uh fury road he's uh he's great as bane i mean he's a good actor
1: yeah i mean the only thing i thought maybe could have been a little uh larger scale was uh it didn't feel like several hundred thousand soldiers um, somehow to me. Um, I, I know that's you know that's but tough maybe that do. could
0: have been a CGI trick they could have
1: done. Yeah, maybe they could have CGI'd more people. I guess, but you know, they looked other like hand, about thousand guys. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm nitpicking, but you know, I mean, there were four hundred thousand men in a relatively small area. I mean, they weren't all on the beach at the same time, right? So, there were. I think guys some of them were supposed to be in the towns fighting. They were but right. Still. Right, and by the way, you know the the germans um, could have wiped them out and they stopped and just let the Luftwaffe um have at them right because they they could have actually just they could have finished them there um in the in the
0: darkest hour, they talk about uh trying to divert some of the Germans away with a different uh British force that basically is able to draw the Germans away for a little bit of time, but is essentially slaughtered. Um, so there's, again, in the other movie, there's talk of a a little bit about how they were able to do little things to give the men on the beach more time to get out. By the way, I do like the use of the, the Stuka bombers. Like they, you know, the, it's it's said throughout everything you read in World War II about how terrified people were of them, and they do a good job in this of letting you see them coming in low and slow, and you actually see the bomb drop, and you can watch the bomb as it heads right towards you.
1: Yeah. It looked really good. And you're totally vulnerable just sitting there in a Right, where can you go? Like, there's
0: mass. that scene where the bombs are coming closer and closer and closer, and that guy who's shooting at them gets essentially obliterated right in front of you. It looks yeah. terrific. Apparently, they weren't allowed to use explosives on the beach, so they used air cannons for the explosions. Hmm. Um, I don't know. Again, I think that probably the best film of twenty seventeen. I don't know if it'll get, it'll win Best Picture. I assume it was nominated for Best Picture, but I don't know if it. Um, I don't know if it will win, but it'll be interesting to see. If this doesn't win, I think it's a little bit of a jip,
1: right? No, it's a good one. Ugh. Chris right. Nolan's good. By the way,
0: the second time we put Tom Hardy in a mask, right? He right. put him behind a mask as Bane. Chris Nolan's good. You know, I I like. I think almost all of his movies, with kind of with the exception of Interstellar, which maybe I should give a second chance to. I don't know. Interstellar kind of left me flat, but other me than too. that, I mean, I really like Chris Nolan's body of work. Yep. I, I, I'm in the middle of rewatching right now. I'm in the middle of rewatching The Prestige, which just holds up incredibly well. Hmm. Anything else you want to add before we wrap up? No, let's wrap up. All right, and like I said, if you haven't seen uh, Darkest Hour, uh, run out and see Darkest Hour in the theater. Great performance by uh, Gary Oldman, essentially unrecognizable as Churchill. All
1: right, thanks, Peter.